Good morning. The scripture today is from 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and when he and when we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart knowing this first for all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy has ever produced by the will of man but, when, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when we leave this place, God, I pray that having experienced you and having met you in your word, Lord, we would be changed forever from this moment on. God, may we, as we are instructed to do in scripture, not simply be hearers of the word, but may we be doers also. And God, I pray this morning, as we spend these next few moments, I pray that we would not, as I say so often before, make this a simple religious practice. But God, I pray that this would be an opportunity to be changed evermore into the image of your son. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Normally, I would begin the sermon uh, with a story or an illustration. Uh, but I will say this, that unless... You have been living under a rock. Obviously, you know there are some things going on in the world right now. And uh, geopolitically speaking and otherwise, everything that's happening, whatever it is, it, it tends to cause a certain amount of fear. It causes a certain amount of anxiety. And yes, uh, it's interestingly enough, it causes a certain amount of doubt, even spiritual doubt, because it causes us to ask questions that we don't normally ask. I will tell you, too, that over the last several weeks, it's been interesting. I've had numerous people come up to me and say, you know, your, your recent sermon series on salvation and assurance of salvation, your, your recent sermon series on that has, has really got me thinking or really has me asking questions. I find it interesting because I haven't been in a sermon series at all. Um, and, and it just so happens that these messages bring that out to each one. But the truth is this, is that I have had numerous people, and, and when I say numerous, I mean numerous, numerous people come to me and begin to ask certain questions and, and, and experience and express certain doubts. And I want to go ahead and let you know, if you're in this room or you're watching online and you were one of those people, this is not directed at you at all. And just over time, I realized, and this is the way that it works for uh, a pastor sometimes, is that... Um, when you are uh, with the sheep and you're around the people, over time, when you keep hearing the same thing over and over again, it's kind of crazy to not speak to it. And so um, I want to speak about that this morning.
morning and I want us to realize that we have, as the title says, a reasonable faith. We have a reasonable faith and 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be. But as we do each week, I don't want to jump right in there. I want us to understand what Peter is saying in 2 Peter. So in 2 Peter, uh, just broadly, Peter is speaking uh, uh, against, or, or if you will, a defense against uh, false teaching. Uh, if you look throughout the rest of the book of 2 Peter, you'll find that he infers or flat out says that there are those who are teaching false doctrine about Jesus Christ. And in fact, claiming that everything that he said and did was not true. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, after he gives his introduction, what we see excuse me, in verses 3 and 4, is that we can rest in the truth of knowing that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what he says in verses 3 and 4. We've been told uh, that we've been given everything that we need to both live for Christ now and to live with Christ in eternity. So we've been given those things. That's verses 3 and 4. Verses 5 through 9, we're told that we need to be fruitful and we need to grow in our faith. Then in verses 10 through 11, we're told to make certain we are in Christ and the confidence we can have in eternal life, in Him. And finally, in verses 12 through 15, we are told to stand in and be reminded of the truth we already know about Jesus Christ. So that's what we're told to do uh, in those first few. And, and Peter's trying to, uh, to shore up their faith, if you will, and, and encourage them in their faith. But today, you may be here and you simply doubt the claims of Christ. You, you doubt uh, what the scripture says about who he is and about what he's done and what he will do for you. You just, you struggle with those truths. And over the next few minutes, I believe that each one of us will have the opportunity to weigh those pieces of evidence regarding the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And I believe you'll have an opportunity to cast a verdict in your own life about who he is and about how you're going to respond to him. Now, Throughout history, it's certainly true that there are those who have gone to trial and, and they have stood before a jury uh, and, and before a judge and the lawyers have presented their case and presented all of the evidence and this person was completely and totally guilty. And yet, the jury believed there was not enough evidence to convict the person. So a person who was guilty was not convicted due to lack of evidence. But then certainly we know this to be true as well is that throughout history there are those who have been uh, gone before a judge and a jury and the, uh, the lawyers have presented their case and given all of the evidence and this person is completely innocent and yet the jury believes that there is enough evidence to convict them. And the way we know that is that later it's overturned or found that they didn't do it. Someone else did it. Either way, what's interesting about both of those facts, whichever one it is, each one of us usually looks at a case and we say, well, if I'd have been on that jury, and we're convinced that if we had been in the jury box, we would have made a different decision. Um, and so... If you have never been given the joyous blessing 
of serving jury duty repeatedly when other people have never done it. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. I'm inviting all of you into the jury box. I'm inviting you into the jury box to hear the evidence about Jesus Christ and then after you've heard all the evidence to cast a verdict. To cast a verdict on who it is. Because that's really what Peter's doing. Peter is laying out a case for who Jesus is and what he has done. See, because there are those who believe that uh, the faith or Christianity is simply blind faith. Or trusting in something without a shred of evidence to hold it up. To leap blindly into the dark and just hope that everything somehow will be okay. Or you've heard someone say, or maybe you yourself have said something to the effect of, well, I I might believe in Christianity, but there's just no real evidence to support it. Or maybe you have said something like, well, but I might believe in the claims of Christ and 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 the Bible, but there are just so many inconsistencies. Or simply, it it just all seems like entirely too much to accept because the message of Jesus and the claims of Christianity are just too far out there to accept. These statements are made constantly. And again, it's very possible uh, that you have said something similar to this. However, nothing could be further from the truth. We have a perfectly reasonable faith that stands on the word of God. In Christianity, we have a foundation that would generally stand strong in any courtroom in the world. It would stand, it stands the test of evidence. It stands the requirements of truth of any other historical document. The way that we understand the truth of historical documents could be seen in, in just how many copies we have that are, that are near there, right? So we, we're able to look at the different copies that are made, compare them, and by comparing them, we can figure out what, where it's, it's correct and where it's not. If you have ten copies and nine of them say the same thing and one of them doesn't, most likely it's whatever the nine say because uh, it's more consistent, Right? So in order to do that, the more and more copies you have of something, the more truth and, and, and the more evidence you can rest upon in that. Now the, the philosopher Plato, his, his most famous work is known as the Republic. Uh, Plato's Republic has been known for centuries and centuries. Uh, historians and academics uh, believe very much so that the copy we have of the Republic is exactly what Plato wrote down. No question about whether it's true. No question about whether it's what he wrote. None whatsoever. We have exactly seven copies of Plato's Republic from history. And yet, nary a question one as to whether it is true. And yet, when it comes to the Word of God, even specifically the New Testament alone, we have 2,600 copies that are exactly the same. Proving, by any, by, just by any method of evidence, historical or otherwise, that the New Testament that we have now is the same one 
that was written when it was written. And the reason I say all that is not because I need to share all that evidence with you and that somehow proves something to you. But even more so, there have been people throughout history who have staked their very lives and even gone to their deaths for the truth of the word of God. Not because they just really wanted it to be true. But as Peter says here, begin in verse 16. Because our faith is based on eyewitness testimony. It's based on eyewitness testimony. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, were, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he begins in verse 16 by saying, for. You could translate it, because. He's, he's saying, what I just said, I am now basing what I'm about to say on what I just said. Well, what did he just say? Well, he just said, everything you know to be true about Christ, you need to be constantly reminded of. And you need to be constantly reminded of it because we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't follow them. It could be translated, we didn't rest on them. It means everything we said and everything we taught and everything we wrote you, we didn't rest it on cleverly contrived myths. We, our faith and what we believe, and Peter is saying, what I believe and know, I didn't rest it on something that I made up. And now when he says cleverly contrived myths, we hear that we say, okay, so he's saying it's not true, but it's actually even more than that. The phrase cleverly contrived myths has a very negative understanding to it. Peter is saying, we know, and you need to be reminded of this, because what we told you about Jesus Christ, we didn't bald-faced lie to you. That's what a cleverly contrived myth is. It literally, it, it, the, the idea behind it is an idea that someone shares when they know categorically that it's false and they still share it. That's what that word means. And Peter says, we did not do that. Our faith doesn't rest upon something we made up. But what does it rest upon? He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses. Peter says, the reason I can tell you for certain that what Jesus said and what Jesus did is true is because I saw it with my own eyes. Peter is not saying, I heard it from somebody. He's not saying, I was told by someone. Peter says, I was there, I saw it all, and I'm telling you, it's exactly what happened. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But then he, he describes a situation, a circumstance. Uh, we actually talked about it a few weeks ago, in, in passing at least. He says in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You may be familiar with that phrase. 
It's used three different times in the New Testament. Three different times where they hear a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Um, but we will find here that the evidence is clear as to what Peter is referring to. Peter is referring to a specific instance, not Jesus' baptism. He is referring to a specific instance that happened for Peter, James, and John. He says, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. Just a really great title that Peter uses for God the Father. He calls him the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We, who? The apostles. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. So now we know it's the instance where someone heard a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and it was on a mountain. Well, there's only one of those. There's only one instance uh, that's shared in Scripture that, that happened that Peter is appealing to. This instance occurred in Mark seven, or I'm sorry, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And it's referred to as the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. It's where... Jesus went away to a solitary place to pray. He took his disciples with him, which was common. He took his disciples with him. But then he took Peter, James, and John just a little bit further in, uh, in a little more intimate moment. It says, as as they were there, uh, they looked up. And when they looked up, it's as if Jesus kind of peeled back his humanity for a moment. And they got to see him in what? They got to see his majesty. Uh, They got to see his glory. They had to see him in all of his majestic glory. So they see Jesus. But not only that, when they look up, they see Jesus there and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. You know, as if he knows them. Why? Because he's not just a carpenter from Galilee who taught as a rabbi, but he's the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal son of God. And so as he's there, the reason he can talk to Moses and Elijah is he's met them before. He made them. So he's having a conversation with them. And Peter says, I'm telling you, I was there. I saw what Jesus taught. I saw what Jesus did. I saw him in all of his resplendent glory. I heard the voice from heaven call him the son of God. I heard and saw all that. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying, I am an eyewitness. And that's the evidence we have. You say, why is that important? Because eyewitness testimony is extremely valuable. Extremely valuable. Say, okay, well, why is this important then? Why is it important that Peter's saying this? Why is he starting his conversation this way? Well, he's, he's combating false teaching. He's combating the fact, as I said before, that uh, Peter were cl- people were claiming, and you can see it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, people were claiming that what Jesus did and said was not true. And so Peter's combating that. And Peter and the other apostles, they saw and they heard. They saw Jesus feed the 5,000. They saw Jesus heal the blind and the lame. They saw him rise. And they saw him alive after they had seen him die. And this is why they were willing to give their lives. See, because Peter, the, the author of this letter... Peter was crucified upside down by the Roman government. Why? Because he didn't feel he was worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus did. So he requested that he be crucified upside down. James was killed by the sword because he refused to stop speaking 
about what he had seen and what he had heard. Paul was beheaded by Rome. Why? Because he would not deny what he knew to be true about Jesus. He had met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and he would never be the same again and he would never stop telling people even to the point of being killed by the Roman government. Andrew was crucified in Greece because he would not deny what he had both seen and heard. Thomas was speared to death because he would not stop telling people about what he had seen Jesus do and what he had heard him teach. Philip was crucified because he would not stop telling others about Jesus Christ. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia because this tax collector and sinner could not stop telling people about what Jesus had done for him and what he had seen him do and what he had heard him teach. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified because he would not deny Jesus Christ. Thaddeus was killed with an axe alongside Simon because he would not deny Jesus. James the younger, or James the less, was stoned and then beaten to death with clubs because he wouldn't deny Jesus and he would not sacrifice to a pagan sun god. Simon was, I'm sorry, Matthias was burned at the stake because he couldn't deny what he knew to be true. And John the only one who was not killed, at least effectively, for his faith and lived to a ripe old age, was thrown in a vat of boiling oil, survived, and then was exiled to a prison island on Patmos. Why? Simply because he could not deny what he knew to be true. And he was willing to die for what he had both seen and heard. So why is that so important? It's important because... In a court setting, when someone gives testimony that they saw something or they heard something, and the moment that uh, the, the prosecution begins to, to punch holes in the case or the defense lawyer begins to punch holes in, in the case, when, when a witness believes that they're about to be punished for something that they are doing that they know is a lie, they start backpedaling really quickly. Because the last thing they want to do is be punished for a lie if they're going to get caught in it. How much more, if a witness is told, you're going to tell us the truth and we're not going to believe you and we're going to kill you anyway unless you tell us something different. And the witness on the stand, any of these men that I listed, they lean into the microphone and they say, I'd be happy to except I can't deny what I have seen. And what I have heard. And I have seen Jesus in all of his glory. And I have heard the message of the gospel. And I will go to my death. Because I will not change my story. See there are some of you. Maybe you've been told. Or um, you have believed. That Jesus was just a good man. Or Jesus was a great teacher. Or a really good rabbi. Or even a prophet. And that there is no evidence to support the message of his life. But there are historical people. And a historical account. That Jesus Christ lived the, the life that is said he lived. And he taught what he said he taught. And there are those who went to their deaths. Because they would not let go of it. Because they knew what they had seen 
and they knew what they had heard. See, Peter tells us that our faith is based on eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. But not only was Jesus' ministry seen, and not only was his ministry heard by many eyewitnesses, but his ministry was prophesied hundreds of years, even thousands of years before, in great detail. And the New Testament is a historical document that shows this to be true. So not only is our faith based on eyewitness testimony, but our faith is based on prophetic fulfillment. Look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. We have the prophetic word. What is that? Well, Peter, in, in the age he's writing, Peter's referring to the Hebrew scriptures or to the Old Testament. So he says, we have the prophetic word. And so he says that we have the, the Old Testament. So Peter says, first, you've got our eyewitness testimony. Second, you've got the Old Testament. But what does he say about it? He says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. Can be translated most certain or reliable or completely certain. Not only do we have eyewitnesses, but Peter says you have the entirety of the Old Testament to prove that what Jesus did and said showed clearly that he was and is the Messiah. But then he tells us something. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention. <laughs> like, like a teacher. You, uh, by the way, this is going to be on the test. right? That's, that's what you, you would do well to pay attention to this. You need to know the Old Testament. That's what Peter's saying. So anybody who tells you need to unhitch your theology from the Old Testament, don't listen to them. Peter just said you're supposed to listen to it, even to pay close attention to it. How close attention? Look what he says. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. You ever been in a room or in a situation where it's so dark, literally, like the phrase says, you can't see your hand in front of your face? It's just pitch black. I mean, you can't see anything. And even if it's a far way off, if it's pitch black, it doesn't matter if they're two miles away. If it's flat, someone, someone turns on their phone, right? Or someone lights a candle. Even if they're two miles, what do you see? You instantly, your eyes are drawn to the light. It's like a light shining in a dark place. Peter says, you and I need to look at the word of God like a light shining in a dark place. Lock our eyes on it. Why? Because if you're in a situation where it's pitch black, you can't see anything, and someone turns on a small light, you will instantly, as a human being, we are drawn to it. We're drawn to it. Why? Because by that light, it's the only way we can see, it's the only way we can understand what's going on around us. And Peter says that we are to look at the word of God, even specifically the Old Testament, but we're to look at the word of God like a light shining in a dark place. We're to, we're to focus on God's word. We're to know it and understand it. But even more so, he says something very interesting because then the question would be, okay, so if that's the case, if we're supposed to know that our faith is based on eyewitness testimony and also know that our faith is based on prophetic fulfillment, and Peter, you're saying in order to understand that, we have to look at the word of God and even lock our eyes on the word of God. Okay, Peter, then how long do we need to do that? Well, he says, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The day. 
Not, not just any day, the day. What is, what is he referring to? Well, he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. How long are you and I supposed to stare at the word of God like a light shining in a dark place? Peter says, well, the way you live by faith is in the word of God. And you need to do that until your faith is made sight. You need to look at the word of God so that you might see Jesus in faith until either you go home to be with him or he returns. You need to keep your eyes fixed on him until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What he's saying is this simply. He is saying you and I need to stare at the word of God, know the word of God, live in the word of God until our faith no longer needs to be faith. I no longer have to look at the word of God to know Jesus. I can open my eyes and look at him in his face. He says, until you're with him. So you say, is there, is there a possibility? No, there is never a possibility where a believer in Jesus Christ is on this earth and you have learned enough, you have known enough, and you know him more fully. And you know him fully enough that you're good and you can shut down. As long as you're breathing, you need to lock your eyes on this light and know this light. Why? Because you're not done until you see him face to face. He says in verse 20, knowing this first of all. So why do we need to stare at the word of God like a light shining in a dark place? Why do we need to do that? Knowing this, first of all, or as a first importance or of primary importance, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet. He's saying the prophet is a mouthpiece. No prophecy of Scripture ever came by the mouthpiece. The prophecy came from God. They are simply being used by God to share that message. So he says, no prophecy ever came from someone's own interpretation. Because, verse 20, or 21, I'm sorry. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So knowing first of all, and then he says, because it, no, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Uh, the word is literally, no prophecy ever was ever carried about or came about by human will. Then he says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. So it's in the original language, it's a, it's a, word, it's a play on words. He says, they didn't carry it out, instead they were carried that's, that's what it means. So they didn't carry it out. They didn't come up with it. Instead, they were carried along. The picture, uh, the word picture goes along with this word is, is like a, a boat, uh, specifically a, a sailboat with sails. Now, a sailboat, and I'm not a sailor by any stretch of the imagination, but I, knew, I know at least this one basic thing, is that in a sailboat, if you want it to move, you have to actually put the sails up. And so you put the sails up, but then ultimately there is one thing as a sailboat captain or whoever that you are not in control of. You are not in control of the wind. 
You can adjust your sails, um, you can set your sails, but you can't make the wind blow. And that's the picture of this word when it says they were carried along. It's literally that, yes, while these were godly men who loved the Lord and, and sat down and they were in the spirit and they were trusting God. And yes, they had a pen in their hand or whatever it was that they were using. And they were writing down uh, the word of God. They were like a ship with sails, but God was the wind moving them along. So the, the idea behind this is, yes, he was using a real person with an actual hand. And they were writing it down. And they were using their own ideas and their thoughts and their vocabulary but in the end the word of God regardless of what you have heard the Bible is not a collection of mismatched stories that have tons of inconsistencies by multiple authors over thousands of years the word of God is one book with one author who wrote it all and the same person is the star of the, the Old Testament he is the star of the New Testament the Old Testament are the promises that were made about Jesus and the New Testament are the promises that were fulfilled Filled by Jesus. When we look at this, the Word of God is not a collection of stories written by a whole bunch of people. The Word of God has one author, it has one hero, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this Word, he says, You can rest your faith on this. We didn't rest it on cleverly contrived myths, but instead we based it on our own eyewitness accounts and we based it on the fact that Jesus fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. So why is this important? Well, it's pretty important because, yes, I gave two accounts, right? I, that, that, or that Peter, rather, gave two accounts, that our faith is based on eyewitness accounts of the apostles and is also based on the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus from the Old Testament. But that's really one point, isn't it? It's really one point. Peter's saying for us today, your faith and my faith can rest first on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, which we refer to as the New Testament. And it's based on prophetic fulfillment of, uh, of, the, 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 of Jesus, which is referred to as the Old Testament. So what is Peter saying? Peter's saying... That the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures that we have in our hands, this is the evidence that we need and all the evidence that we will ever need to understand and know Jesus Christ. And in fact, what he's telling us is he's pointing back to the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And he's telling us that the way we can know for certain the living word of God, which is Jesus, is by diving into and living our lives in the written word of God. This is the way we know Jesus Christ. Did you know this? Did you know you can't know Jesus apart from his, the way he is revealed in the word? Did you know that you can't truly understand salvation apart from the way it's revealed in the Word? You say, well, somebody led me to Christ without, uh, you know, they didn't, I didn't have a Bible with me and I came to know Jesus. I, I, I believe you completely. But the gospel that they shared with you, if you came to faith in Christ, the gospel they shared with you, they learned from this. You can't know Jesus apart from the Word of God. So if you want to know Him, if you want to know how to combat doubt, if you want to know how to combat fear in your life, the only way to do it is to live in the Word of God because you cannot know the living Word of God unless you live in the written Word of God. And maybe you're in this room this morning or you're watching online and you're struggling with doubt. You're struggling to believe. 
all these claims about Jesus. And you're struggling, but you've heard this. And maybe for the first time, what you're hearing is not somebody just standing saying, look, you just need to blindly believe it. It doesn't matter what your questions are. But instead saying, yes, ultimately is a step of faith. But trust me, it is a step of faith in a real person who really lived and really died and really rose from the dead. How do I know this? Well, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in, in Corinthians, he says, For I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by the apostles, by Peter, by the, by, so by the twelve, and he was seen by 500, over 500 witnesses after his resurrection. And Paul says, and he was seen by me on the road to Damascus even several years later, as much time later. So when we look at all that, what is he saying? Is he saying, here's the truth of Jesus, just accept it blindly. No, he's saying, here's the truth of Jesus. And because and at the end of that passage, he says, and many of whom are still around. What was his point? If you want to know if it's true, Go ask them. And it wasn't one or two people or three or four people. What Peter, it wasn't Paul just saying, take my word for it. Paul says, at least, at least 513 eyewitnesses who both saw and heard what Jesus said and what Jesus did. I can promise you this. I've watched enough, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but I've watched enough court shows to know this. That if you have an eyewitness who said they saw something. You bring them up on the stand. They say, I saw this. I heard this. Okay. Then you bring another one on the stand. They say, I saw this. I heard this. When you get, it depends on the judge, I'm guessing. But when you get to like number 10 or 15 and they keep saying the same thing, I saw this and I heard this and it's exactly the same. I'm pretty sure he doesn't let you go through 513. At some point they go, we get it. It really happened. Why? Because their stories are consistent. Because they were willing to go to their death for it. I can promise you this. If Peter knew it wasn't true, don't you think he'd have backed out before he was crucified upside down? If John knew it wasn't true, the one who ran to the tomb, if John knew it wasn't true, you think he'd have let them dip him in boiling hot oil? And you say, okay, so you're just giving a whole bunch of evidence. Well, here's this. Evidence is not enough for you to come to faith in Christ. Because in the end, you have to believe. But what Peter's trying to tell you this morning, if that's you, what Peter's trying to tell you this morning is this, is that if you have heard the claims of Christ, you've, you've heard the claims of the gospel, and you say, well, I don't know, what Peter is saying is, look, it's got more than enough evidence to be true. So if you refuse to come to faith in Christ, that's your decision. But make no mistake about it. It is not an intellectual decision. It is a decision simply to not believe. Not because there's no evidence, but in spite of the evidence. And that's the truth. This morning is what Peter's saying. Look, we have a faith that is reasonable. It's reasonable. It has eyewitness accounts. It has prophetic fulfillment that it is based on. All of that. But in the end... You have to believe. You have to say, you know what? He is who he says he is. He did do what he said he'd do. He will do for me what he said he will do. I'm putting my life 
in his hands. That's what you have to do this morning. You can't just believe enough evidence to to be a believer. You have to know the evidence, but then you have to simply come to a place where you say, I'm going to put my life in his hands. And Peter says, it's a clear faith. It's a reasonable faith. If you're a believer this morning, you're struggling with doubt and fear. You're struggling with um, this, this shakiness. The only way for you to combat doubt and fear in your life is to stare at this like a light shining in a dark place. You live in a dark world. And the only light. You remember when you were a kid? Uh, I remember at Vacation Bible School, you say your pledges. And then I remember growing up saying the pledge to the Bible. I pledge allegiance to the Bible. God's holy word. And I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I will hide his word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Right? That, that's, that's the pledge to the Bible. And the, the point is, is it's a bunch of verses put together. But what does it say it is? It is a lamp unto my feet and it is a light unto my path. Peter says you need to stare at it like a light in darkness. Like you got to get to that light. You've got to understand it. Why? Because all you can know about Jesus Christ, everything you need to know to live. And, and, and as he says in chapter 1, everything you need for life and godliness is found in his word. And the only way that you can do that is to know Jesus Christ. And the only way you can know him is through his written word. So that you can say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The only way to combat doubt in this life, to combat fear, is through faith. Faith is the opposite of fear. And how do we have faith? Well, it's interesting because we're not left alone in that either. The scripture tells us very clearly. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So how do we combat faith? By living in the word. Believer, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with fear, all those things... Don't don't grit your teeth, close your eyes, and just hope it'll go away. Dive into the Word. Dive into the written Word so that you can know and experience the living Word. And I promise you, just like the song says, in the light of His face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. When you look at Him, all doubt and all fear simply melt away. Why? Because we don't have a faith that's just blind. By his word we can see. We have a reasonable faith that is founded on the word of God.